Spanning the nerd world and feeding your fandom. Crash landed. From comics to video games. From the cinematic universe to television. Connecting you to the biggest stars in the industry. Something out there had discovered us. It's time for the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Here's your host, James Witham. Should be no surprise that things are getting a little strange on the show this week. It's episode 270 of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. I'm James Witham, and I've been just chomping at the bit to talk more about Krypton on the show. I know we had our spoiler-free review of the season premiere, season two premiere, that happened, but no, I want to talk spoilers, and I can't think of a better way to do that than to get Adam Strange on the show this week. That's right, Sean Sipos is going to join me to talk about the first couple of episodes of the show and what's going to happen in season two coming up. I mean, no spoilers for the rest of the season, but we're going to get a lot of teases. And, you know, just being on the show in general and being on such a show, a show with such an original story as Krypton has. We'll talk about that. Also, going to be talking about Men in Black International. Yeah, I braved the theater. Yeah, I'm going to give you my spoiler-filled review coming up. But I know you've been waiting since it was E3 last week. Didn't do any reviews of comics. So we'll do that next. It's what we're reading on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hey, this is writer Kyle Higgins, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Ah, the excitement when you push the power button on the laptop or the tablet, or even when you slide at that long box. Because whatever you're reading on, it's time for what we're reading. And a couple of extended issues this week, actually. Extra-sized issues, as it were. Superman Year One, the 2019 edition from DC Comics, from Frank Miller and John Romita Jr. We're going to start there. Of course, no spoilers on these reviews. Now, this is really, I say Superman Year One, in a little bit of a different sense because it really is a story about the formative years of Clark Kent. And yes, there is a retelling of sorts of the whole Krypton story, but that's very, very quick right in the beginning of the story. And it it really gets, it's not a huge part of what happens. But I will say this, we do have a little bit of a, I want to say a Forrest Gump, vibe to this. And and I don't say that in the fact that Clark Kent is Forrest Gump in this story or anything like that. It's just the the vibe I got. It wasn't necessarily like a southern living type of thing, but it was very much a a very deep farm lifestyle living type of a vibe to this entire issue. Everything was very old-fashioned. Everything was very small-town feel. There was like a whole oh shucks ma type vibe to the thing if you know what I mean. It was very, it was almost leave it to beaver. It was almost, that's another good example. Kids Google that. You'll understand what that means once you Google it. It felt very old fashioned to me. And we get to see him take on, him being Clark, a lot of things. We get to see him take on bullying. We get to see him finding love, you know, hiding what he can really do. That is one thing that is definitely a big part of this. And just kind of just finding himself in general. And this story really takes time to show you how and why Clark makes the choices that he does with his life and how it's going to shape him going forward. And a decision that he makes about his life after high school that is a, going to be a very interesting part of this story. I can tell you that much right now. And that is going to... I've already seen a lot of fans talking about that. And again, I'm not going to spoil anything for you, but it is a huge topic of conversation and there will be more to the story and I can't wait to find out exactly how 
that's going to play out. Now, John and Martha Kent in this book are very, very different to me. Again, that very small town kind of farming family feel, and they come across much differently than you might be used to. Maybe not as strong. I mean, the influence is still there, certainly, and there is certainly some wisdom there, but not as strong of characters as you would remember in other Superman stories that they were prominently featured in. Now, this book really, I mean, to me, tosses the rules of which we'd expect from a Superman book right out the window, and I will let you decide whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. I mean, this is really a Clark Kent story that much I can tell you for sure. There are some super elements to this. It's, there, it's not completely out of the realm. But it to me, it should be Clark Kent year one. That That's just my opinion. And I know that for Superman year one, there has to be a lot of Clark Kent. Totally understand that. There was another Superman year one not too long ago, right? And that's certainly covered that so it's not like that shouldn't be a part of it what i'm saying is is that there is a lot of clark kent in this and that's not a bad thing either by the way it's just this is presented in a very different way than you would expect and the circle of friends that he travels with it's it that's a very interesting story and the way he defends his friends i think is a is a really interesting part of this story and and how that plays out that played out for a while too by the way he his relationship with his friends and people that he felt like needed help and and it was just presented in a very very different fashion and i've said that word a lot already i realize it's different and that's exactly what this book is and that's either going to make you really really happy or that's going to piss you off one way or the other that's the way i feel about this book even though my rating of this book john Romita jr by the way his art is very, very good in this book, especially in the scenes where it's Clark and his significant other in this story, who I also won't spoil. Although young Clark Kent, you, you might already know who I'm talking about, but the art just shines in the scenes where there's so much love in the air. Let me just let me just say that. When when Clark Kent is in love, that is when the art really, really shines. In this book, it's you could almost see John Romita Jr. really pouring his heart and soul into those scenes specifically. But there, there's a lot of things to love about the art in this book. I'm going to go ahead and give this a pickup. I can't throw this in the pool box just yet. I certainly don't want to drop this because I think that this is a good Clark Kent story. And, and, and I was kind of happy about that. But I'm still on the fence about the book in general. So we'll go ahead and give this... A pickup for now, and we'll see how it goes in the next book, book two. Going to do something from Lion Forge this week because we don't review enough of Lion Forge books on this on this show, and this is from the Roar imprint as well. It's at the end of your tether, number one from Adam Smith doing the writing, Vivi Glass on the art, Hillary Jenkins on the colors, Jim Campbell on the letters, and Deanna Soeth. And I'm sorry if I butchered that last name because wow, I I really had no idea. But that's it's a beautiful cover of this book if you haven't seen it yet. Now, this the story follows Ludo Carey. Now, it's a young teenager in a military family. And when he was younger, he meets a girl named Arlo. And while they're both of their families are kind of living in the base housing. We sort of jump between, you know, the time when they met when they were a little bit younger and present day sort of situation. Now, in the present day, Ludo's family's life's kind of complicated. And his family has moved away from the town in which they used to live on the military base housing. Now, 
They're going back for a short visit, and of course, I mean, why wouldn't Ludo look to reconnect with his with the love of his life, or what seems like the love of his life? You know, when you're young, you think that's the love of your life, right? And maybe it is. So the problem that Arlo is having here is that, and this might be a little bit of a spoiler if you haven't seen the description of the book, but it's literally in the description of the book from Lion Forge. So I'm not really spoiling, spoiling anything in that regard, but just in case you haven't seen it, I want to give you a little bit of a warning here. Arlo finds that, actually Arlo has gone missing, and that's what Ludo finds out when he comes back, and he had no idea. He especially had no idea because of something that happens earlier on in the story, and that is maybe the most intriguing part about this whole book, but I can't spoil that for you. You're going to have to read it for yourself. Now, there's a lot of typical teenager in Ludo, and this book is very self-aware of that. It definitely calls that out. Things do drag on a bit, though, in the middle of this book, and again, this was a little bit of an extra-sized issue. It wasn't your standard 21, 23-page story, and it feels like the story was maybe a few pages too long. I kind of got the point that was trying to be put across about Ludo's character and about the family and things like that and his relationship with Arlo. I got it quickly, so I wasn't sure it needed to be hammered in as much as it was. Now, the beginning of the story is also completely out of left field and no real explanation for why. Now, it could be one of those instances where we're going to see different stories converge and connect at some point, but it looks like there's only three issues in the story. So I'm not sure that that's it. And if it is, it really, I really hope that it happens fast. The art in this book, though, is really, really good. There's some really good details on there. But it, it, there really aren't any big moments that stood out. There's not these, these grand scenes where this, the art is going to really pop out and be fantastic. It's, it's a very ordinary life sort of book with a twist to it. Now, if you buy into Ludo or relate to him in any way, shape, or form, then you will be invested in this book for sure. I have no doubt about that. So if that's where you come from in this book, you might want to put this in your pull box. I, again, have to give this a pickup. I haven't seen enough to make me want to absolutely have to read this book every week. I will grab the second issue and see what I think there, but my caution bulb here is lit a little bit only because of how much this first issue dragged on. I like the concept. I like the connection between Ludo and Arlo. I like that little bit of a twist that was involved with her disappearance. And I have no idea what's going on with the beginning of the book. And I am kind of curious to see how that plays out. It's going to do it for what we're reading this week. Up next, going to talk about some aliens and Chris Hemsworth and Tessa Thompson and Liam Neeson. Yes, Men in Black International. My spoiler-filled reviews next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is Cassia Teller from The 100, and you're listening to The Down and Nerdy Podcast. The box office really has an international flair this time around, doesn't it? That's right. It's going to be my spoiler-filled review now of Men in Black International. I just think it's interesting because we've got Spider-Man Far From Home. That's going internationally. You've got Men in Black International. It just seems like that that's going to be a current theme of the next couple of weeks anyway. And... And again, I'm not going to like narrate the movie for you and talk about all these different scenes and everything like that. I'm just going to give you my general impression with some spoilers mixed in of the movie. Now, just as an overall observation, think about something that you really like to eat. Maybe it's your favorite thing to eat, but it's something that you really like, okay? And you're eating it, and you're enjoying yourself, and then you get to that point where you know that you've had too many, right? You're like, oh, if I'd have just stopped 
at that that last piece or that last bite, I would have been good. But now I kept going, and now I don't feel good. And that's, to me, Men in Black International as a whole. First movie was really good. Second movie was good. I mean, that's debatable, I know. I'm And the third one, okay. And then this one, you realize pretty quickly where you go, okay, yeah, that, yeah, probably shouldn't have done this. This was just one too many. Yeah, this didn't really need to happen, did it? But we're going to talk about it anyway. Now, basically, this follows Agent H, who was played by Chris Hemsworth, and then you've got his partner early on, High T, who's, of course, played by Liam Neeson, and then later on, of course, Tessa Thompson ends up being Agent M. Now, here's the deal, though. They supposedly saved the world early on in the movie, Hemsworth, Agent H and, and High T do, early on in the movie against a alien faction known as the Hive. But we come to find out later on that that's not necessarily the case. But here's the deal. Just as a general observation, again, the villain in this movie was highly confusing. Okay, so you had these two other aliens who were trying to assassinate like an alien, a member of an alien royal family. They look first look, looks like they're trying to seek out help to do this, but it didn't seem like they really needed a whole lot of help. It turns out they were looking for some sort of drug to help make this assassin, assassination happen, which, by the way, didn't even really work. If you want to go back and really think about it, if you're going through that whole assassination attempt scene in the movie. But these these two aliens, I'm so sick of the cliche of, oh, they're going to come down and they're going to steal the, the identity and morph into, okay, we see that way too much with aliens, don't we? And this is not a knock on Captain Marvel, by the way. Scrolls to me, totally different. That's an established thing from the comics, okay? I understand that. But we're re- we really have to do this with every freaking alien movie now where they just take over the body of somebody else. Now, I know the first Men in Black movie kind of did that, right? You know, we've got the whole, you know, the bug stole the skin sort of thing. But this was, this was different. This was more of a shape-shifting, and then they, their abilities are like the ability to, shape, to, to to manipulate matter. You know, it's a solid one second, it's liquid the next. Again, it just seems like a, such a tired trope for aliens and stuff like that. And then... It, it, maybe they were kind of villains. Maybe they weren't. We find that out at the end of the movie, and then we find out maybe there was a mole in Men in Black, and yeah, that turned. That was one of the most obvious things of this entire movie, and they did such a poor job too, in my mind, of trying to, you know, push that suspicion onto somebody else. We're like, oh, maybe it's Agent C. Maybe it's maybe it is Agent H. After all, and it's like it's so obvious. That, yeah, again, spoiler alert, so obvious that it was Agent T. I mean, it's just, it was so obvious to me that that's who it was throughout the entire freaking movie. And then once you realize that, you know, they didn't really save the world the first time around sort of thing. And that was, it was almost like that's the way the Hive infiltrated the Men in Black because that's how they thought that they could get what they wanted and destroy the Earth. And again, it's one of those where they're going to destroy the Earth type of situations, and I guess maybe you can't tell the story any other way, I guess. You know, the aliens want to destroy our planet. It just seems to me like every now and then there should be more to it than that, or there should be a little bit smarter of a story. I don't know. Maybe I'm expecting too much of this movie, but here's the other problem. Maybe I was expecting too much, and the villain thing was kind of clunky, but 
you figure, okay, well, we'll just make up with that and make it fun, right? Because one of the best things about the Men in Black movie the first time around was just how fun it was, right? It was just a fun movie, even if even if the storyline wasn't like the greatest story ever told, you still had fun with it, right? Here's the problem with this movie is that it took so long to get to the point where I'm enjoying myself. I mean, I don't think I laughed out loud until at least 30 minutes into the movie, if not halfway into the movie. And I know this isn't necessarily a comedy. I get that. That's not really what they're going for. But I would like to think that it would at least be funny enough to keep me laughing a little bit or at least make me crack a smile. I'm, I'm just waiting, waiting like hell for them to get into this story at a certain point, which took forever. I do like that they took a little time with Tessa Thompson's character, though, Agent M, because she was basically had the alien encounter when she was younger. She became obsessed with finding the men in black, and it took her 20 years to do it, and then she basically is the you know the go the go getter agent that really wants to learn everything and finds out maybe it's not as glamorous as she thought it was. It's a little bit more involved than she thought it was. A little bit more serious, but she never loses that luster of really wanting to be a part of the Men in Black. Even when the, there were times where like Chris Hemsworth, Agent H, his character was being a douche a little bit, and yeah, she gets upset with him, but she's still like the perfect agent. Right. And there are certain things that, you know, could shake her resolve, but really don't. And I really enjoyed Tessa Thompson's character. She's probably the best thing about this movie. And her chemistry with Chris Hemsworth is always good. But they didn't they really didn't give Chris Hemsworth much of a chance, did they? I mean, yeah, he played the arrogant, brash agent who, you know, is a little bit, you know, not even a loose cannon, just like he just does stuff without caring or thinking about it. It was almost like. He was kind of playing his character from Ghostbusters again, but he also, you know, was actually an accomplished agent and he just turned into this guy where he's kind of an idiot and just does stuff because he thinks I'm Agent H. I'm the great H that saved the world, so I'm just going to do whatever I want. It'll be fine. And that and that is kind of a problem throughout the movie for some of the characters. And it's not that they're not self-aware, but it just didn't seem like like, okay, this is what you're going to have him do. And then I didn't really get the friction between Agent, Agent M and Agent H. I get their I got their chemistry when they were getting along. It was really good. But the friction just wasn't really there in a couple of scenes where there it really should have been there. And maybe it's because they're, they're so likable together as a duo. I don't know. But the, the best thing about this movie, other than Tessa Thompson, was about halfway through the movie, and that's Pawnee. Kumail Nanjiani, I mean, was just fantastic as that character. Most of the times that I laughed were something to do with Pawnee or something that Pawnee said or something that Pawnee did and the whole My Queen thing with Agent M. That was really, really great. Pawnee was one of the best things about this movie and they waited too long to bring this character in and give this character something to do. It was so... It was so frustrating because it was like, I'm not saying that you had to bring this character in the, the second the movie started, but it was one of those deals where it worked out so well, I don't know why they waited as long as they did, and they really waited a long time to make this happen, and then he actually becomes a pretty significant part of the movie. It's one of the reasons that, that they end up saving the, the, the world from the hive, right? Because if Pawnee doesn't drag Agent M back in there from that you know portal that she's being sucked through, 
it's over, right? Game over because it's not like H was having a great time down there with that member of the hive that used to be his father figure. And, and so if, if Pawnee doesn't do what he does, it's lights out. It's over. So uh, him being one of the best parts of the movie, it just, I don't know why they didn't, they weren't self-aware of that and didn't try and make that closer to the beginning of the movie. Cause, uh, and then there was a whole past relationship that Agent H had that might have affected him going forward, but it turns out really didn't because he got neuralized when he saved the world, and that's what changed him more than anything else. And there was other things that just didn't make sense, like when this royal family member gets assassinated from this alien nation that's supposed to be this big, powerful alien nation, and it's like, well, we want your heads. We're going to... And it was one of those things where maybe they'll attack the Earth. Maybe they'll destroy the Earth, or, the, or at least the men in black, at least. And then they just never go back to it. But now when they recover the weapon, they're like, we have the weapon. Yay. Tell them we're good. You never get the sense like you do in that first Men in Black where when the bug is on the earth and this one alien race says, no, this we're not having a bug running around. So we're just going to destroy the earth and be done with it and because we don't know where the galaxy is. It wasn't even like that. I never got the sense of danger like something could actually go wrong. And this could go south. And you know you know that in a movie like this, the the good guys are gonna win, okay? There's no that's not an argument. The argument is you actually have to give me a foe that I think is at least somewhat overwhelming odds for the heroes to overcome. I never got that sense. Not even with the hive, because we didn't even know the hive were the villains, the real villains anyway, until closer to the end of the movie, and it seemed like they dispatched of those two other, the the, the twins that, that those aliens occupy. We didn't even really know anything about those aliens either. What, Liam Neeson's character says their name for like two seconds, and we really don't know much beyond that, like why they're there, why they're doing what they're doing, until they think to themselves, oh, maybe they were trying to get the weapon to stop the hive, and then that was it. They earned nothing. For those characters, and that was frustrating. And then you do bring the Hive in, and you did kind of prop them up a little bit by talking about how amazing it was that they were defeated. And this was a save-the-earth type of a situation. Okay, so you prop them up a little bit, but then, you again, you give me, what, maybe 10 minutes of that towards the end. And I never really felt any sort of doom because everything seemed either dispatched of too quickly or not established enough to make me think that it was going to be a problem. So there was just a lot of things that did not go right for this movie. And and I and I understand why it had the box office number that it did. And I understand why a lot of you maybe shied away from going to see this movie. And I'm not saying I regret seeing it because anytime you could see Chris Hemsworth and Tessa Thompson together on screen, I'm there for that. I'm sorry. They, they just work so well together. I just wish that they were given a better story and a better script to work with on this because, I mean, it just it just did not work for me at all. So, I mean, it wasn't my cup of tea. If you're a Men in Black fan and you're just a big fan of the franchise, then don't not see this movie because it's definitely something that's, that I think worth seeing if you're really a fan of the franchise or if you just really love Chris Hemsworth and Tessa Thompson. This is worth your time. But, I mean, if you're looking for something rock-solid story-wise or, or characters that you're going to remember or a great villain, or just something that's really funny, this movie just misses on all those beats. I'm sorry, I really wished I had better news for you, but Men in Black International probably won't be seeing a whole lot more from this in the future.
That's going to do it for my spoiler-filled review of Men in Black International. Up next, plenty of nerd news to get to, and J.J. Abrams and his family coming to comics. We'll talk about that next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hey there, this is John Lehman. You are listening to Down and Nerdy Podcast. You can check off another storied franchise for the Abrams family. That's right, it's time for nerd news. And Marvel announced this week, Marvel Comics have announced that J.J. Abrams and Henry Abrams, his son, are going to be writing a special Spider-Man limited series for Marvel that's going to be coming up in September. Now, here's the details before I really jump into this whole thing. Basically, this is a story that's going to be a five-issue arc, first reported, by the way, by the New York Times. want to make sure I get that in there. And it's going to be coming in September, and we're going to see all not just... J.J. and Henry Abrams are going to be involved in this. We've got Sarah Pichelli is going to be doing the art and joined by Dave Stewart as well. We do know there's going to be a new villain in this series, brand new villain called Cadaverous. And, I mean, the name's, the, the word cadaver is in the name. That cannot be a good thing, right? So that's going to be a very interesting villain to deal with. And here's the deal. First of all, there's a little video on Twitter, and clearly... Henry is is he's really excited. He's 20 years old by the way. Just in case you didn't know that he is 20. He doesn't look 20, that's for sure. But he is 20 years old. And I you, this has got to be a, a dream for this kid. And anybody that's bashing the kid on Twitter. I mean, come on. It's a 20-year-old kid that is really really excited that he gets to write Spider-Man. I mean, don't go after the kid. That just that just seems ridiculous. I say kid. He's he's 20 years old. He's a young man. Let me let me correct myself on that. He's a young man. But, I mean, compared to other people that have been in comics for a long time, you know, he is still a kid to in a certain extent. He is, he's still 20. He's still young. So, dream come true for this kid. And, you know, J.J. Abrams' dad, that doesn't hurt him. Let's just be honest about that. That that certainly does not hurt him that J.J. Abrams is his dad. But he gets, gets a chance to write Spider-Man. And who wouldn't want to do that? Who wouldn't have that dream to someday write Spider-Man? So, it looks like we really don't know much about the story other than that, in the villain. And certainly J.J. Abrams has a pretty good pedigree as a writer. Maybe you love his stuff, maybe you don't. I know that that's a matter of, you know, debate on how... I love J.J. Abrams personally and a lot of the stuff that he's done. So I'm pretty happy about this, and I think that he could do a very good job, he and his son, with Spider-Man. So this is certainly something I'm willing to give a chance, and I'm always down for something new when it comes to Spidey and maybe a fresh take. So we'll see. Well, of course, I'm someone that loved Superior Spider-Man too. by the way. Maybe you didn't. I just thought that that was a nice, cool, refreshing change. And you also have to keep in mind, this is a limited series. And there's no word on, you know, how much of this is going to be maybe in continuity or, or what have you. So it, there's still a lot that's up in the air about this. Maybe we'll find out more at Comic-Con. But I did want to address a couple of things that I saw on Twitter. Some of the reaction to this from the comic community, we had... Christopher Sabella, comic book writer Christopher Sabella, who said, and this is something he posted on Twitter, where he says, and I'm going to quote this, J.J. Abrams and his kid writing Spider-Man is the best example of how big two comics isn't the meritocracy, isn't a meritocracy, and never has been. Okay, and before I open this up for discussion here, we've got John Lehman, who also, you know, comic book writer, a couple people we've actually had on the show before, by the way. And Lehman says, making comics since 1995, deliver quality scripts on time and hassle-free, have two Eisners and seven 
in quotation marks, comic book, New York Times bestsellers. Pursued Marvel work since mid-2016 and was told this year, credible source, Marvel won't hire you, and that is in quotes. Congrats to J.J. Abrams' kid on his new, on new Spidey gig. Those are two quotes from a couple of very well-respected comic book writers in the industry. And there are, there are other various quotes. I don't want to single these two out necessarily, but I don't want to sit here and read you a thousand quotes either. But those were a couple that stood out for me. And there, there were plenty of quotes of congratulation as well. But you know what? I get it. I understand. Okay. I think that in any work that you do, you've been there, right? You've had somebody that's come into your company that you've been at for a long time. You've paid your dues. You've worked your way up the ladder. You know a lot. Maybe you feel like you should have gotten farther than you actually have at that point. And somebody rolls in that seems to have less experience. Maybe they knew somebody and that's how they got the job. And all of a sudden, they're promoted ahead of you in a quick fashion. I understand that. And I'm not even saying that this is sour grapes from Sabella or John Lehman. I'm not even saying that they don't have a point here. What I'm saying is, is that, I don't know, it's it's hard because you, you really do see both sides of the argument, but it also doesn't mean that J.J. and Henry Abrams won't write a great Spider-Man story. And here's the other problem, though. When you have somebody coming outside of the world of comics that's been doing movies or TV or whatever other, wherever else they might have come from, even novelists, don't necessarily come in and translate to great comic book writers, do they? There aren't a whole lot of examples of that throughout comics, not even just recent comics, just in general. We don't have a lot of evidence of this working out in the past. So this would, this would quite frankly, be a rarity if this works out well for the Abramses in this Spider-Man story. So I understand... If somebody might be upset about this that's been in comics, and I certainly think that you have your right to be upset about that. I would never take that away from anybody. And and I understand that it can be frustratingly hard to break into the big two. I've heard stories from names that I will not mention about how difficult things are to get a comic, get a job from one of the big two as a writer or an artist or a letterer for that matter. I mean, it's hard to break that barrier. And then you see somebody that, you know, J.J. Abrams and his son just all of a sudden waltz in and they want to write a Spider-Man story and it's just that simple sort of thing. Well, we assume it's that simple. I, I don't want to really assume anything here. I I can tell you that it seems like the folks at Disney are J.J. Abrams fans. That much I could tell you. I mean, he's still working on stuff. He's working on the final Star Wars movie. Now he's got this going on. So they, they clearly seem to be fans of, of his work. And I do wish... JJ and his son, the best of luck on this book. I really, really hope it's great. I think it definitely has a good chance to be. And I mean, all you can do is keep making comics, right? Beyond that, that's all you can really do is just keep making comics. I understand the frustration, but we'll see how it turns out. Maybe it'll be a great book. And at the end of the day, if it's great, that's all that really matters, right? That'll make all this worthwhile. Speaking of great books, Hunger Games fans, you've waited long and hard and the time is finally here. Scholastic Publishing announced via the Associated Press earlier this week, or even last week, depending on when you're listening to this, that a prequel novel from the famed series is going to be coming from author 
Suzanne Collins, and we actually have a release date already, May 19th, 2020. Now, all we know about this is that the novel will be set 64 years before the original trilogy. We also know that it's going to be taking place during the Dark Days and the Failed Rebellion in Pan Am. Now, here's something that I think is absolutely brilliant. I just talked about this with Men in Black International and how maybe this was one too many. And you're carrying on this story a little bit too long. This is one of those instances where even though it is a Hunger Games story, it feels like we're going to get something brand new because we're working backwards. The only thing that's really going to be familiar, if we're being honest, is Pan Am itself, right? It is going to be the setting of the story. The There's very few characters that are really even going to be alive during this time, right? You've got President Snow. He's not going to be president 64 years in the past. We know that for sure, right? But you could that you could see maybe the Snow character would be a part of this, and maybe a couple more mixed in here and there. But n- nobody made. You're certainly not going to have Katniss in the story. You're certainly not going to have Peeta or Gale or any of those characters. This is going to be so far in in the past that it's going to be like a completely new story. But at the same time, it's one of those huh? I wonder what happened back then. Sort of situations at the same time. So here's the deal. This is the smartest thing that you can do to try and avoid franchise fatigue. And it's also smart that they waited as long as they did. I mean, think about it. The first book was released in 2008, right? It's only been about four years since Marking J Part 2 was in theaters. So it hasn't been that long since the last movie. But you waited just long enough, right? To tell this story. And I'm not going to get into the whole, is Lionsgate going to get the rights for the movies? I think we're putting the cart before the horse there. I certainly think this movie will get made by somebody at some point. But I don't really want to go there just yet. I think that this is a really smart move by everyone involved. I'm glad it's a prequel. And I think it is going to feel like an entirely new story. And yep, the Hunger Games franchise, just when you think you're out, they pull you back in. Don't they? And I think that this is great. Here's something that I'm a little bit on the fence on, and, may, and maybe this is me, me being grumpy old man here, but Disney is going to be re-releasing Avengers Endgame with quote-unquote new footage. It's going to be a post-credits type of situation. Now, of course, this is reported by Variety, and there's a little bit of information from Screen Rant in here. And as of me recording this show, it looks like Avengers Endgame is about $40 million short of the all-time box office record that is held by Avatar. Clearly, this movie, is they, they want to beat the record. It just seems like this is a grab to try and break the record. And the, the extra scenes and the extra, the extra time on this movie, it looks like it is going to be post-credits. So, here's the problem. <laughs> Is this a cheap move to break the record? I'm just, I'm asking. I'm not saying I don't like it. I'm just saying. I'm not saying I don't love Endgame, because I do. But is this a cheap move just to break the record? Do we need to do this just to prove a point and break the record? Disney owns the rights to Avatar now. So, technically, they have the record now. Do we need to do this particular thing just to break the record. And I'm sorry, the, the post-credit scenes for Marvel recently, 
And I know that the ones for for Far From Home are supposed to be pretty big. And I'm not... No, no spoilers on this show. Don't worry about that. But there haven't been a whole lot of them that mattered lately, have there? Not a lot. I mean, Ant-Man and the Wasp had kind of important one because we find out how, how, spoiler alert, Scott Lang gets trapped in the quantum realm, right? So that makes sense in that that one kind of mattered post-Infinity War. But at the same time... A lot of these post-credit scenes have not mattered a whole lot lately. And if this one doesn't matter, I mean, you can be mad about it, but they're all gonna already going to have your money. So it doesn't matter. And maybe you do want to do this just so it can break the record. Maybe you just think that Avengers Endgame deserves this record and should have it and, and, and should get it at all costs. I totally understand that. I just feel like this is a 100% obvious move from everyone involved to get this movie past Avatar. And maybe you'll get a little bit of a bump from when Spider-Man Far From Home comes out in theaters. Maybe we will see Endgame get a little bit of a bump. A bump enough to beat out Avatar without a complete re-release? Probably not. But it's going to be interesting to see if this happens and it still doesn't break the record. That's it. Still might not happen. It's not a guarantee that this movie's going to earn another forty million dollars just because it has post-credit scenes in it. And this is already a three-hour-plus movie. Keep that in mind. So, uh, only time will tell if this movie is going to pay off. And hey, I'll be happy if it breaks the record. I'm, I just think it, it's like it's like a cheap pop at a wrestling event, right? When you say the name of the place that you're at just to get the crowd to go nuts. Just it just feels very very much like that to me. But hey. If you want the record, go out there and get it. Really quickly, I want to talk about the final trailer for Stranger Things Season 3, which is going to be out on July the 4th, only because I think that we get a little bit more information on what's going on, villain-wise anyway, because it looks like the darkness is looking for a new host, and it looks like, at least to me anyway, that douchebag Billy, that's right, Max's brother, is going to be said new host and going to be the villain, although it kind of seems like it might be Hopper too, a little bit, right? I mean, they, it, it almost sounds like him at first, and then they pull back on that because you see him with we, you see him with Eleven, you see him with, with Joyce, and you think, okay, it's probably not him, but if it was him, man, that would be something. You already hate Billy anyway, right? You already feel like he's a villain anyway, so if it ended up being him, that wouldn't be that big of a deal. But if it was Hopper, man, that would be a big deal, and that would be impa- impactful. And then it looks like you, we kind of saw something leaked about a new monster, and it looks like we might actually get like a Mega Gorgon, right? First we had the Demogorgon, now it looks like we're going to get Mega Gorgon, right? We're, we're talking about like Kaiju level Demogorgon, it seems like, that we might get in this new season of Stranger Things. And only time will tell if that is the case, but man, this thing looks like it's going to be a nasty, nasty monster. And, it, and I don't think Will is ever going to sleep again, quite frankly. I don't know how any of them can sleep. But Will, you see, he is still super high-strung, and you totally understand it from his perspective. But man alive, this kid's never going to sleep right. And if you're Joyce, how could you sleep either, really? So it looks like, you know, other than that, it looks like the typical dynamic from Stranger Things. The kids have definitely grown up a lot, and I'm sure that's going to be a part of this season as well. But it's finding out what this new host is going to be like and who the, the, the villain is actually going to be and how that's going to play out. Going to be really interesting. I'm feeling this is going to be a very emotional season of Stranger Things coming up for Season 3 on the 4th of July, which is not that far off, by the way. 
That's going to do it for Nerd News. Up next, time to talk to Sean Sipos about Krypton Season 2. We'll do that next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is Aaron Pierre from Krypton on Sci-Fi, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Man, what a premiere for Sci-Fi's Krypton. It has been already a great season. I feel like we're only, what, one episode, two episodes in now? So we're going to talk to Adam Strange himself right now. It's Sean Sipos. Sean, how you doing? Great, man. How about you? Doing great. Now, we know that Adam's mission in Season 1 was to save Superman, yep. so it feels like that mission's kind of dramatically changed already. Now, talk about how the show has evolved since we first saw Adam. Well, I mean, we've created a whole other storyline. It's, it's, everything has completely changed. In the world that we've come to know now, Superman no longer exists. So, you know, I think one big question is, will he ever? Is Adam able to correct that in some way? Once you start traveling back in time and things start changing... Just basic physics tells us that you create separate storylines, separate separate timelines, sorry. Absolutely. Now, speaking of how things have kind of evolved, that is certainly true over the relationship between Adam and Seg, considering how things started. Now, what's your favorite thing about the dynamic between the two of them? Uh, well, I think that they're kind of, you know, Cameron and I always speak of them sort of like Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid. I just think that they kind of like each other's yin and yang. They They keep each other out of trouble or help one another get out of, you know, a situation. And certainly without one and the other, I think they both would have been dead by now. So I think that's the, the biggest thing is, is that they're able to keep each other alive. And then that they bonded. They, they have a deep friendship. You know, I think particularly Adam helps to bring levity to the situations, which benefits both of them. Um, because when you have levity and you can take something lightly, even a serious situation, you can be creative with it. You can think yourself out of it and, you know, find a way to solve it. Now, a little bit of a spoiler warning in case anybody hasn't seen Episode 2 yet. Things have gotten really interesting now. The Brainiac has become kind of a little bit of a wild card in this whole situation. So how will Seg and Adam kind of deal with that as the season progresses? I mean, first off, I'm going to say that I think Brainiac's always a wild card. But I'm wondering what I can say here. Well, no, I guess I can say because you guys have seen it. I mean, uh, Brainiac has kind of... He spread himself, put pieces of himself in multiple places in the multiverse to, to make sure that he survived, no matter what happened. And somehow, with him going into the uh, Phantom Zone with Seg, he somehow assimilated himself into, as a part of Seg in his mind. So, you know, what we saw in Episode 2 is there's, there's a battle going on in Seg's head and his body. So that's a big twist. Um, and one that, that I think is ripe to play out throughout the season. Speaking of twists, I, lo I, I think that I'm not the only one that loves Lobo already. It's certainly already one of the biggest topics of this second season. How much fun has it been having that character on the show, and how amazing has Emma J. Scanlon been? Em, it's whatever, you know. No, I'm just <laughs> <laughs> is, uh, you know, he's a wild card, and he's, he's just a fantastic actor. And then, you know, there's this wonderful thing that doesn't happen all that often, but chemistry between people, um, between actors, it doesn't happen all that often. Especially doesn't happen all that often in threes. And I think the three of us seem to have this really great chemistry. And then you tack on to the fact that Lobo is such a crazy character and you put it in the hands of someone as skilled as Emmett and as, as crazy as Emmett, and you're bound to come up with some fireworks. So... You know, I think that everybody's really enjoying them from what I can see, and, and my personal opinion is that as well. So, you know, I'm looking forward to seeing more of it. 
I think, and I you, think everyone will love the spinoff as well. I think you two especially bounce off of each other really well. I think that Adam and Lobo kind of match each other shot for shot verbally. Yeah, there's a lot of humor that happens. Lobo seems to have this strange crush on Adam. Yeah, it's weird. Uh, the whole, no the whole, intended. the soft skin thing. That's a that's that's a new one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> now so speak- he seems to be he seems to be quite about him. Yeah, definitely. You you mentioned the spinoff. I mean, it, it, there's certainly a lot of Adam Strange's story to tell. What about an uh, Adam Strange spinoff as well? I mean, I would love that. You know, I think that the fans would enjoy it, and uh, I guess we'll see what happens. Hopefully, you know, that yeah. would be that would be great. I think there's a lot of things that you can do with that. A lot of places that he can go as well. Same with Lobo. And a lot of characters, too, that he's interacted with in the comics as well. A lot, yeah. Speaking to Sean Sipos, of course, plays Adam Strange on Krypton, which you can watch Wednesdays at 10 o'clock on Sci-Fi. Now, Sean, as if this mess with Brainiac wasn't enough, there's, there's still a resistance going on in this pending war with Zod. So how much will trust issues actually play a role in this upcoming war? In terms of Adam's storyline, I'm not sure how much trust really plays into the into the game because mainly I'm with Seg but as we all know there's Nyssa and there's Lyda and those two kind of have, have been known to flip-flop so with Seg and and, uh, and there's Jack Sir as well so yeah there's a lot of there's a lot of questionability in terms of people's loyalties and where they where they're going to go but let's just say that Krypton is a drama it's a drama series and there isn't any drama without conflict and deceiving people would be ripe with conflict so i think they're going to see a lot of that i think i'd agree with that so far as absolutely now to further complicate things doomsday is still running around out there now here's call me crazy here but do you feel like adam's knowledge of doomsday from the future could actually help stop him or can he not be stopped because maybe i'm a lunatic i'm gonna go with there's no way that he can be stopped the only one that's ever stopped him is superman and superman and then even then it's questionable whether or not he stopped him or merely kind of put him to rest for a bit. Right. He seems to be indestructible. So, I mean, he's certainly not anyone that Adam or Seg or anyone would want to run into. You know, I think that they, they get forced to under certain circumstances, but I don't know if anyone can stop him. I, I think maybe the best bet uh, might be Lobo, to be honest. I think that's a fight that all fans want to see right there. I think so, because he just, he has that, you know, the regenerating ability so if he gets smashed, he'll just kind of grow back. I yeah. mean, I'd pay to watch it. Yeah, I would, absolutely. That's you, you could shut up and take my money on that one, that's for sure. Yeah, let's do that. Yeah. But here, here's another thing I want to ask you now. In a world that, of comic book series and you know TV series and movies and stuff like that, telling an original story can be very risky. But Krypton has really done a great job of doing that so far. Do you think one of the show's biggest strengths is its unpredictability? I think so. I think its biggest strength is the imagination of our creator, Cameron Welsh, and David Goyer. And the fact that they, you know, realized that by bringing Adam in, they're able to change the storyline so that we're no longer completely hooked in to the comics in terms of uh, what happens, right? Everyone knows who the characters are, and they know what they're like, but they can't, they can no longer look to the comics and go, oh, well, this happens and this happens, so this has to happen, because it doesn't anymore. And I think that's one of the greatest strengths of the show is that people don't know. They can genuinely say, I have no idea. Superman could never exist. Anyone could get, you know, off. And we just go, oh, well, it's a completely different. We've never been here before. 
and I think that's what makes it enjoyable. Definitely. Now, Sean, before I let you go, Krypton's had had such an amazing twist, actually multiple twists, in, season, mm-hmm. in the season one finale. So without spoiling anything going forward, how do you feel like this season is going to top that, or do you feel like it will top that? I think this season... I'm gonna I'm gonna be bold and say that I think this season is uh, much better than last season. I thought last season was good, but I really think that the show's found its legs and uh, has found what it wants to be. So there's more humor, a little more humor, and there's um, you're you're just not weighed down with the same issues that you have in a season one, which is establishing the world, establishing characters, and setting up all these different stakes. You get to hit the ground running. Because you already, all that's established, so you know who the characters are. You don't have to waste time setting up the world. Or Again, I just think that we found our legs, and, and I think that everybody's in for a heck of a ride. Make sure you're joining that ride, too, by the way, every Wednesday night at 10 o'clock on Sci-Fi. Make sure you're watching Krypton. You can also watch it again, by the way, by going to sci-fi.com slash Krypton as well. Sean Sipos, thank you so much for joining me this week. Gentlemen, thank you for having me. It's been really great, and let's do it again sometime. One of the things I love the most about Krypton is that relationship between Adam Strange and Segal. It's really this almost buddy cop type relationship, and there's so much respect there, and there's so much, so many light moments between the two of them. There's a lot more comedy in this second season of Krypton than I expected in, in a show that does have such a heavy story. There's a little bit of a lightness to it. I really can't wait to see how this story is going to play out. Make sure you're watching Krypton on Sci-Fi Wednesdays at 10 o'clock Eastern. Check your local listings and other time zones. You want to watch this live. You don't want to miss a second of this season because I do. I got to watch a little bit ahead. Yeah, I, I know I cheated a little bit, but I can tell you the stuff that's coming, is, is it keeps upping the ante. And I just love Krypton this season so, so much. I loved it last season, but I'm really digging this season a whole lot. That's going to do it for this week's edition of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Again, thanks to Sean Sipos for joining me this week and the folks at Sci-Fi and Warner Brothers for helping me out with that. And, of course, if you want more about the show, there's been some other Krypton interviews that we've done. Go find them, They're up there. Also, you want to find us on social media, do that, at downandnerdy757 on Twitter and on Instagram and facebook.com slash downandnerdy as well. Remember, you never have to apologize for being a nerd, so let your fan flag fly. Be good to your fellow nerds.